it is really important that um, we share really honestly where we went wrong, what didn't work, what did work, what we've got now, uh, and how great life is. It is possible to move on from being in active addiction. We're on Instagram, which is the underscore Dynamo Project. I think, are we, what else are we on? Drugs. No. <laughs> are we? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I want that in there. I thought I was a monster and no one else did that. But it turns out um, I'm not the only one. I woke up from a six-day coma. I had a bullet in my leg. I had my fingers chopped off. I had a punctured lung. Being honest about how I really feel and how I really felt then. I've got no shame in saying how scared I was as a kid growing up. It's only in the last few years that I'll, I'll, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll yeah. sit and be comfortable with anyone. And that's since I've been in recovery. I didn't really find my true authentic self until I got recovery. Did you ever think back in the day you'd doing a podcast with the next copper? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> Welcome everybody to the second episode of our brand new Addiction to Recovery podcast. As always, uh, with Kieran and Pete, and today we are delighted to be joined by Dave. Thank you for inviting me, Kieran. No problem. So, Dave, how do you feel about being on uh, the podcast today? Well, uh, two things: it's an honour, and also a little bit nervous, if I'm honest. Yes, knowing it's going to be aired, and you know, you're going to. He'll be fine, Dave. Yeah, talk about some real stuff. Um, a little bit nervous, yeah. Yeah, I think it's like the, the, you know, the whole setup, isn't it, Pete? It's a bit, it is a bit nerve wracking when we come to do our podcast. It's a professional we? setup, isn't it? So yeah, you feel a little bit on edge, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, in recovery, we're used to public speaking by now, so you'd be, be a natural, mate. You say that, Pete. I, I, I was, um, I went, I walked into a venue the other day, and as soon as I opened my mouth and introduced myself, and I knew everyone in there, I still got nervous. Yeah. This happened, doesn't it? Yeah, at times. How are we going to start our podcast from now on? Is we're always going to start with the question which was left by the previous guests, all right? Yeah. So last on the last episode, we had Lauren on. Um, so the question that Lauren wanted to leave the next guest, and she had no idea it was going to be you, her question was, at what point did you realise drugs and alcohol were becoming an issue for you? This was the question she left. So what would be your response to Lauren's question? I knew drugs and alcohol were an issue for me, um, probably by the age of 24. Um, however, when I knew that my drugs and alcohol were a major problem in my life and everyone's life around me, um, an incident happened and I was in intensive care, I was in a coma. I was 29 at this point, oh, um, so five years later. Um, so I'm in a coma, I woke up from a six day coma, I had a bullet in my leg, I had my fingers chopped off, I had a punctured lung, I had a broken right arm, um, all the bones in my left hand had been smashed, um, my jaw was smashed, my ribs were broken, like I just said, I had um, tubes going into my neck and to, to, to administer blood transfusions, to give me um, morphine, to give me all sorts of medications. And I had a tube coming out of my lung going into a, um, draining the blood out. And I 
was in a real bad way. I was in a coma and um, when I woke up, my nan was holding my hand and my auntie was sitting next to her. Um, I weren't physically withdrawing from, from drugs because I was on morphine and everything like that. You know, the, 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 the hospital were taking care of me. But when I, my girlfriend, the kids, my, my kid's mum walked into the room and obviously I've used, at that time, I had used drugs with her. And as soon as I seen her, I had a physical reaction. Something in my brain associated me and her using drugs together and I had a physical reaction. Like my heart started beating faster and all I could think about was getting drugs. And on reflection, I just wanted my nan to go, I wanted my auntie to go and I just wanted to be left alone with that person so I could manipulate her to go and get drugs for me. And on reflection, when I had time afterwards to think about it, it was really like I knew then how bad it was and uh, how powerful it was, what I was up against. So I think that's a, it's quite a good question, Lauren Left, wasn't it? It's a brilliant question. Yeah, question. Uh, it's very thought-provoking. So later on, Dave, towards the end of the podcast, um, you'll replicate what Lauren did, yeah. and then you will leave a question for our next guest. Okay. I think it's a really good way to start the podcast. I like yeah. to say it was my idea. It wasn't. It was Taylor's. Yeah. Yeah, it is a good way to start the podcast, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially about on this subject of addiction. and you know, yeah, it really Sort of is. links all the guests as well. You're yeah. now linked to Lauren your question will then link you to the next guy addiction is quite a what's the word where it's not really spoken about there's still taboo. yeah but taboo is a good word isn't it? Yeah. it's like uh this i i this is my belief that there's still a stigma attached to, to addicts yeah i think it has got better um but i don't think it's as far as long as it needs to be and this is why I think you're seeing more and more podcasts now of and not just addiction, mental health and stuff that gets down to the nitty gritty of how we feel. I think they are getting more relevant now and people are starting to listen more. And you, there's a good, this is a good format, isn't it? To, to get people's own personal experiences of yeah, addiction. Definitely. And when you think about the things that you've just said, it, it is a taboo. It can be a taboo subject for some people. It's definitely getting a lot of more exposure now. And some of the things you said along um, addiction, mental health, um, and then you throw crime in the mix, and then throw trauma in the mix. These are all subjects that are often interlinked. Do you know what I mean? And, and individually, they can get their own bits of exposure. Yeah. But in a format like this, they can all be interlinked and spoken about. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. It I does. Know, I know you didn't want to use that. No, phrase. I've been told not to say that because I keep doubting myself, don't I? Okay. Okay. So, um, obviously, I know you from recovery. I'm sure Pete knows you better than I know you. Um, so, we have a little understanding of of where you've come from to where you are now. But what's very important is that we want the listeners to, to get to know you and, and be aware of your journey and more importantly where you're aiming to be so let's talk about a bit about your your early days you know talk to tell me and Pete the listeners about what day was like as a kid growing up what was the environment how you felt do you believe any of them influences from the early days shaped who you turned out to be in the future you know so tell us about Dave growing up definitely my uh, early childhood uh, experiences influenced me and shaped who I was behaving and portraying to be 
Um, I didn't really find my true authentic self until I got recovery and had a look at myself. And, and there was a lot of masks getting worn um, by me throughout my life. Um, I grew up in a large family that is uh, quite notorious in Coventry. And my earliest childhood memory was I was three years old um, and we were living in an area in Birmingham called Saltley, multiracial area, predominantly Asians. And I never, ever, I had, I've got a vivid memory and, and memories of that time. I never had any experiences of feeling uncomfortable or feeling out of my, out, out of my comfort zone. And I was in an area where a lot of people didn't even speak the same language. When I used to go around to friends' houses, their mum and dad would be speaking their native tongues and not, and it, it didn't make me feel uncomfortable. It weren't until, like, later on in life, I found out that my mum and dad was on the run for a crime my dad had committed, um, a serious crime, and they were on the run in Birmingham. That's hence the reason we were there. And a group of men turned up on my doorstep and I just heard loads of commotion going on. I went to the doorstep, my mum's screaming, my dad's fighting a group of men in the, in the front garden. Um, his face is all bloodied and he, like, he's fighting. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop fighting. Like um, my dad was, was well known for that, you know? Um, and it was really traumatic for me, like watching that, do you know what I mean? My mum was screaming, she was getting held back by someone on the doorstep. They was all, just dressed like normal people. So I didn't associate them with being police or anything like that. It weren't until my dad got taken away and put in one car and me and my mum got taken away and put in another car. Um, and we got to a police station in Birmingham, Steelhouse Lane. I know it to be now. I didn't know it to be that then. And um, when I went in and seen a police uniform, my instinct was to run towards the copper because it was safety and grabbed his leg and he booted me off his leg and shouted, get this little bastard off me. And uh, that sent me into shock. Um, like further, really scared I was, I was really scared at the time. And, um, and then my mum and my dad went into separate cells. I went in a cell with my mum. And then my nan and granddad on my dad's side, nanny, nanny, and, granddad, nanny and granddad Bowman, came and collected me from there and just took me to live with them back in Coventry and Starley Road. And um, I was just asking like all the time, where's my mum, where's my dad? Their way of protecting me, because what were they going to say to a three-year-old child? Oh, your dad did this, so he's gone to prison. Uh, your mum did this to protect him, so she's gone to prison. They went to jail and my, I, I, I was just told, don't ask questions. So I, was, I had all that like unanswered stuff going on in my head at that, at that young age. Um, there was a lot of resentment against the police within the family that I listened to growing up um, for different reasons. Um, I was there once when the police raided my nan's house uh, looking for one of my uncles and left a right mess when they did that. So I grew up hating the police, you know, um, and that shaped the way I thought, the way I viewed the world, um, the way I viewed authority. Can I just interject? Do you relate to that, Pete? Do you? Because I know. Do you ever? Did you grow up with that attitude towards the police? Because pretty much everyone around me hated the police. Growing up, my when I was younger, I used to go and visit my dad in prisons, and 
the whole area, we had a hatred towards the police yeah. and any authority. Yeah. At that time, I'd already been to detention centre. Because of my, my actions, you know, like I, I started committing crime at a young age. Um, I started doing naughty things at a younger age. Um, and I didn't know then that that was addictive behaviour to, to, to change the way I actually felt about myself i felt inside it wasn't until i spoke to some counselors that i uh, started to identify oh yeah i used to get a lot of affirmation and a lot of validation from my peers and so and it, uh, the feelings i used to get i used to get a lot of adrenaline rushes and, and i liked the way it made me feel it was like adrenaline's a chemical isn't it That's yeah i was about to say did you enjoy the adrenaline uh, yeah. as a young person before yeah. drugs i yeah. did yeah. and i didn't know that 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 was and and so when i used to do the earliest naughty thing Mm. What was that called? Right, a tat ginger. Yeah. yeah. Was yeah. it called that back then, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, um, well, then that weren't enough. So I, I'd have to knock on his door because yeah, I know yeah. he'd chase us. And then that weren't enough. So I'd have to knock, knock on his door to know he'd chase us. And when he caught us, he'd battle us yeah. if he caught us. So what I'm trying to get at is everything started to get a little bit more naughty and a little bit more dangerous because the feelings getting more intense you know what the mean? buzz needed to be more intense than that yeah so yeah. if the guy was going to really scare you you'd knock on his door it'd be more of a buzz wouldn't it yeah and it, yeah yeah it did and then that evolved into crime petty crime at first obviously and then the, the crimes i used to get a, a, an adrenaline rush out of committing crimes as well as get a financial reward as well as get a, the, the affirmation and the validation did you go, did you go to school I, I attempted to. <laughs> I did I attempted to? I got kicked out of um, two secondary schools in my first year of of, of that. Um, I never fitted in at school um, um, when I was um, younger. I was always always in scrapes, and I didn't fit in. I felt I, I seen the, the headmaster as authority. He made an example of me and embarrassed me on a couple of occasions. Um, and I, I held on to severe resentments about that. So I grew up like with that kind of mindset of hating authority. Doing what I do now and being honest about how I really feel and how I really felt then, I've got no shame in saying how scared I was as a kid growing up. I have a question for you. So when you were small, when you were really small, yeah, you felt unsafe. Yeah. And what you tell me, and I, I know you anyway, so yeah. I, I know you felt unsafe. From then, from being a little boy, when was the next time you felt genuinely safe? At what age? Was it before recovery? Was it when you entered recovery? Because I know you That's entered, a good question. Yeah. At what part of your life? And it may maybe never. So I know I, I know how it feels to be unsafe, but what do you remember when was the, when was the ne next time you felt genuinely safe? I don't think I've ever felt 100% safe and comfortable uh, without looking over my shoulder at, for either revenge attacks, either getting arrested, or it's only in the last few years that I've, I've, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, yeah. I can sit and be comfortable with anyone. And that's since I've been in recovery because I don't commit crime now. Um, the same would be with for me. It weren't until I got clean and stayed clean for a while. Yeah. The whole time in my using, 
And I think it contributed why I used so heavily and why I carried on using was the feeling of being unsafe. Yeah, yeah. And expecting. But, like, I wasn't successful at crime. <laughs> you know, I went to prison too much. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The results speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. I weren't a successful criminal. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I weren't. I got injured a lot. Yeah. In, in, I got, you know, with my violence, the violence against me. So I weren't even that successful at committing violence. I won a few and lost a few. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There was always that was an expectation. I was either going to get nicked or I was going to bump into so-and-so or something was going to happen. Do you know what I mean? It was always expecting the worst. Do you know what I mean? Um, or there was always the potential of something bad to happen. Do you know mm. what I mean? Um, now I don't think like that. I don't I don't expect anything bad to happen. Um, I feel comfortable. I feel happy. I think the 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 physical wounds, I can only speak for myself, but all the physical wounds I experienced in my life and in my using were nothing compared to the mental ones. Mm. You know, the mental yeah. damage, the mental torture, the stuff that stayed with me, the stuff mm. that stayed with me from when I was a little boy, yeah. still thinking exactly the same, but I look like a man. It's, mm. it's really strange, but I talked to a lot of people with addiction issues and stuff that happened to them when they were five or six has stayed with them and they're now 40, 50, 60. It's, yeah. it's so it's so powerful. It's ingrained in them so much. Um, yeah, and I can relate to that. Mm. Um, when I was just talking a minute ago, as one example about what happened when I was a kid with my mum and dad, as I was talking, I could feel the feelings. You know, I could hear it in my voice. Mm. My voice was like um, shaking a little bit. Because I was, then feelings came back again. And these are feelings that are essential for you, for us to learn how to cope with. Yeah. Or else yeah. we won't stay in recovery very long. That's that's a good point, yeah. Kieran. That's a brilliant point. And that's what people don't maybe understand. Is and 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 to identify with other people that may not be able to identify with them circumstances. I also went through some um, abuse at the hands of my mum's brother. Yeah. That I was always ashamed to talk about. It weren't until I opened up to counsellors that um, I was able to be transparent about that yeah. and accept it, get some acceptance around it um, and be able to cope with them feelings when they come up and them memories. So would you say that um, professional help has served you well? Definitely. You know, in, it gave me, it gave, go on, Pete, sorry, I interrupted you. No, that's all right. Just, I just meant like in, in your recovery, I know you do a lot of recovery, um, similar to mine, but professional help. Yeah, and I'll tell you why. Because I've, I'll give you a glimpse of the mm. environment I grew up in. So it's no surprise, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say that I never, I never trusted anyone. I couldn't trust anyone. Mm. I always felt abandoned every time my mum and dad went to jail. So I couldn't rely on that. Yeah. I got abused by my mum's brother. So couldn't trust anyone in the family. And there was other family members that fucking knew about it. Do you know what I mean? Like my, um, like his mum, that's my nan, my mum's mum, knew about it. I'm getting angry now. I'm, 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 I'm getting resentful again. Um, so I trust, and then I couldn't trust the police. Mm. Like when I got shot, when I got stabbed, it weren't, it, like normal, someone would go to the police and say this or that. That weren't where my head went with it. Do you know what I mean? Um, no one went to jail for shooting me. No one went to jail for stabbing me. 
so because I, I wouldn't trust the police, I never lived like that anyway. Um, and so yeah, trust was a major factor in my life, trusting anyone, and trusting myself because I, I, I weren't used to making good decisions, so I didn't even trust myself. I wasn't used to making good decisions um, that were healthy for me and for people that around me. When I went into rehab and had professional help, I knew that the counsellor mm. that I was opening up to was bound by their confidentiality. Yeah. They, they, they had to be able to be trusted. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? How did it feel when the words come out of your mouth for the first time? Around the abuse, if you don't mind me asking. It was scary. It was scary and shameful. I was really ashamed of it. Did you blame yourself? No, like, no. I questioned myself. Yeah. Like, why me? You know, I weren't the only kid there, so why would it be me? Do you know what I mean? And the answer I've come to is because my name was different to theirs. I had a last name growing up in that household. Because I moved, when my, I didn't, I skipped this bit. When I moved from Nanny Bowman, well, my mum came out of prison when I was at Nanny Bowman and growing at Bowman's house, where I was safe. They doted on me. They loved me. I was named after their their first son who had been killed in tragic circumstances. So I was there. I was their oldest grandchild. I was there. They doted on me. I had. I was spoiled. I had everything. I was always well fed. Always well dressed. Always well looked after. Safe environment. And when my mum came out of prison and I went to live with her, it was like going from to one extreme of love and care to another extreme of just dysfunction. I often went hungry. If I didn't go out robbing, when, as I got a little bit older, I didn't eat. I was neglected. Like I said, I was abused. It was horrendous. Yeah, my mum was like, um, my mum had substance um, abuse issues. She was an alcoholic. She died from drink. I love my mum. And I would never um, put her down, do you know what I mean? I'd never speak bad about her. She she just had a lot of issues with her drink and drugs and didn't have the skills to be a good parent. That's the truth. So from that one question about you in early days, quite a lot of information has yeah. come up there. Mm. And I reckon our listeners would be you know, quite amazed, really, that someone could have all that trauma mm. in early years and you have had a lot dave mm. however we do hear this quite a lot don't we yeah in terms of people in recovery yeah. it's, it's more common than what you think it's just that people don't obviously for right the right reasons or whatever don't feel comfortable speaking about such things yeah and like i'm not saying that i'm sitting here feeling comfortable <laughs> i've just got the tools yeah. now to be able to talk about it to be transparent like i said a minute ago kieran when you asked me how i felt about speaking about it for the first time I was ashamed, you know. I, sh I was ashamed that um, I came from one side of my family where that would happen. I weren't ashamed about the, the, the family members who used to commit crime. That was like, in the environment I, I, I grew up in, that was something to be like, you know, like on the street, it was well known, well, well thought of. But that side of the family would never accuse children or fucking neglect children. Uh, on the other side of the family, and not all of them, I want to make that clear, there's yeah. some good people on my mum's side of the family, but not all of them were good people. Do you know what I mean? That's the truth. And um, so I was ashamed to be associated with that, and I, I could come from that, and I, I could be a victim for, for, for that. So it weren't until it was pointed out to me that that wasn't my shame to carry. 
you know, that's that's that person's shame to carry. That I started to get some understanding about it and, and, and give it some thought and thought, you know what, that's true. You know. When when you spoke to um when you spoke to either professionals or, or sponsors, not so much about abuse, but about when you spoke about things you've done in your life, maybe yeah. some things you're ashamed of doing yourself or my experience of that is I from 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 my upbringing and where I'm from and the way we all were, it was no one tells no one nothing, right? So when I come into recovery and it was a different, it was a different community really. You know, you, you get a sponsor and you start to talk about stuff, and then once yeah. trust is there, I found when I spoke about stuff, I spoke about some stuff last night. I mean, when I met my sponsor and stuff, and when you when you talk about stuff that you've never spoke about to anyone before you feel like you're dropping yourself in it a little bit. Yeah, and I thought yeah. once I'd actually like verbalized it and spoke it, I thought I've said it now, I've put my name to that. I've admitted yeah, that. You know yeah. what I mean? But when I first started speaking to people, I wouldn't speak with a phone in the room. Yeah. I'd say we need to take our phones out of this room. Yeah, I mean, I was yeah. so paranoid. I'd, anything there, if there was a laptop there, I'd say there's, there's no way I'm speaking with anything electrical in the room. Now look at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Surrounded by electrical <laughs> items. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah, they're everywhere. The more I speak about it, the easier it gets. Yeah, I agree. And I don't speak about like this, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, yeah. There's one major subject, one major incident that happened um when my dad got shot. I was there. And um I can't go into detail about because I'd love to talk about how that made me feel mm. and the circumstances about it, but I can't for legal reasons. Definitely. Like on the earlier podcast we did and on the old podcast, so I said there's a certain stuff that I would never speak about. Yeah. You just wouldn't. It'd be daft to. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there's plenty of stuff yeah. that we can speak about. Yeah. There's plenty of feelings that you can speak about, and there's a million things that have happened to us that will help people if we speak about it. Yeah, you're right, you're right. And that was one of the most, for me, that what I just touched on there about when the night that that happened to mm. my dad, it was a, one of the most, and you've just heard some of the stuff I've been through and, and experienced as a as a young child and, and, and stuff. That was one of the most turmoil periods. Most of it traumatic. It was, it, the dad. circumstances around it and everything else caused me so much mental turmoil. Yeah. yeah. How old, that, how old would you have been then, Dave? Well, I was um, 24, 25. The turmoil it caused because of the circumstances, I haven't met anyone who can relate to it. Mm. Yeah, I haven't because of the circumstances yeah. and who was responsible and, and everything else and how it made me feel and how I was torn. Um, and I'm going too far into it now already. But um, yeah. I, that's one subject I can't I can't broach any further. Talk to me and Pete and the listeners about when you first took a drug or drink. Do you remember what it was, where you were, how it made you feel? I can't remember the exact first one, if that makes sense. Because, yeah. you know, I could go back and say it was a cigarette or um or it was a sip out of my mum's bottle. And I did them things, but I don't remember the very first time I did it. And I know a cigarette, the first few cigarettes I had made me feel sick and dizzy. Did you cough? I yeah. cough when I had open. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the drink, when I took a, a drink, I drank too much and got really badly sick. The first substance I got 
into, like, and did regularly was glue. And that was like, um, my friends when I was growing up, I used to hang around with people that were older than me because um, they were they were doing naughty things, mm. like, you know, skinny. more advanced. Yeah. More yeah. advanced. Or were you attracted to that? Yeah, I was attracted to chaos and drama, yeah. You find the older lads who are a bit more advanced than they and whatever they're up to. Yeah. It's more and, appealing, isn't it? Yeah. And they and they were like, um, they, I remember being, they were all into glue, um, skinheads and that. And um, so I experimented with glue. And they stopped it and I carried on. It weren't until, I'd have been about 13. It weren't until I went to DC. Um, it weren't until I went there that I stopped it. And then when I come out, I didn't carry on. Um, but I started smoking cannabis shortly after that. And I really got into the cannabis. And then it progressed, you know, like I stayed into cannabis. I thought I'd smoke cannabis all my life. I enjoyed it. I liked it. Then... Would you mind telling what did you progress onto? So we've got glue, the... cannabis. Occasionally, I'd have a bit of speed when I went out for a drink. But see, in through through all of that, there was big gaps of of, of when I weren't out and I, I was in prison. So from thirteen, I, I went to to detention centre when I was fourteen. I came out when I was fifteen, or went when I was fourteen. I came out. Yeah, when I was fifteen, then I went straight from there back into secure unit. And then from secure unit, I came out when I was 16 and I was uh, still smoking cannabis. So the, all them times, there'd be um, gaps of where I weren't doing anything because I weren't smoking cannabis when I was in secure units. I didn't smoke it when I was in um, detention centre. I did turn up at the detention centre, stone though. My dad, my, when I was in juvenile court, my dad came down and brought me a, a bit of drawdown. and said, put that in your mouth, son. And... Um, I had it in the side of my mouth and it came open. I was there all day in the heat and it came open. <laughs> Katie's laughing. And it came open and it is uh, it's just melting in my mouth. And I, I was just <laughs> listening to the judges and I was just getting stoned and stoned. <laughs> and by the time I got to detention centre, like I'd gone over to the police station on stone, I fell asleep. They got me, took me to the detention centre and I got there and like, I've got. Because people talk. used to eat it, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. My uncles not used to eat it. People still do now, don't they? I bet they that. thought your twin brother it was your twin brother. You were so relaxed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I got out of the police car and he, he's gone to me. Uh, what's your name? I went, uh, Dave. And he went, Bang! What's your name? I went, That's confusing. <laughs> I, I don't know one name. I went, David. And he went, Bang! He said, what's your fucking last name? And call me, sir, after every every sentence. I went, oh, I ain't fucking saying my last name. My name's David, but uh, it scared me. Do you know what I mean? I went, Bowman, sir. And <laughs> wax said, around the he, head help, didn't they? He, he went, run that. He, no, he said, go down there and read that sign on the end of the wall. So I went, started walking down. Stone, do you know what <laughs> I mean? And he, he's gone, bang, fucking move it. Yeah, so that was, it was a shot. <laughs> It was a short, sharp shot. And it was like that all the way through for three months. Three month sentence. But we did six weeks. So yeah, I wasn't smoking it in there then. Um and pretty much cannabis was the mainstay of my drug using uh from that age up until when I when I used to go to prison after that, 
I would always get cannabis brought up, so I smoked it in prison a lot. Um, and I did a lot of time in young offenders. And when I came out, when I was 21, I, um, 1989, and ecstasy had took off. You know, like the, the, the E scene and the rave scene was big. Um, and it was all a shock to me. Do you know what I mean? It was like, I was fucking hell, what's happening here? Is this, in, is this in Cobtown? All over the city. Yeah. All over the city, yeah. But all over the country, not just Coventry. Um, I'd see people that I knew were enemies when I went to prison. They'd be fucking hugging each other. I love you, Held mate. Held up. I love you, mate. You know what I mean? I was thinking, <laughs> yeah. fucking wanted to kill him last time. And uh, so I, I, and then I started getting into... I, when I came out, I thought, I'm going to earn some money this time. Like, some proper money, do you know what I mean? And... Um, so I, was, I didn't take anything for six weeks or six or seven weeks. I was just looking around. Everyone's taking these. So I'm just getting some ideas about where, what direction I can go in and um, how to earn some proper money. And I had some some ideas and, and I seen what everyone was spending their money on. So I started selling a bit of ecstasy and I started doing little raves. And we did bits, bits of fraud and stuff like that. And we got the cigarettes and the alcohol and... and um, we charge people in, so everything they bought when they got in was our fakes, our drink, our drugs, um, and that's how I started to earn money. And then I started to take the ecstasy, and uh, yeah, I started to take a lot of it because I'm an addict. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know that. Then. It's called ecstasy for a reason, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you take ecstasy? Yeah, I took ecstasy. Oh, I really, At school? Oh, yeah, sometimes. Okay. <laughs> More so in like, there was like a bit of an era when there was like a house raves on and stuff. And I, yeah. I, I really enjoyed that part of my using, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I oh, know. Listen, when it, when, I when had it was a great just, time. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, had a great yeah, time, yeah. man. When it was just ecstasy, I really enjoyed it, but it wasn't long. There weren't but, much violence in them house no, raves, really. No, 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 it no. It weren't very long before... I met someone and she introduced me to um, heroin and me being me, if I'm an addict. Uh-huh. If I feel good, I want to feel better. And my, 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 my addiction goes, spreads into every area. Can you remember the first time you, you took heroin? Yeah. Yeah. What was it didn't really have that much effect on me because I, I was under the influence of ecstasy. Do you know what I mean? Didn't I didn't notice much of an effect. Ecstasy sort of... Um... It's sort of like overpowers, doesn't it? It's really strong. Yeah. And in them days, it was like 1989. It was when we 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 were first exposed to it, and it was really like apparently the pills that that, that they have today are nothing like what they did. Were yeah. then. Do you know what I mean? Um, Love doves and Mitsubishi's and all these mad names, uh, and they were really really strong. So I did I did experiment with heroin a few times and. I didn't notice that it was doing anything to me, if I'm honest. But then, so there was no danger signs there for me, even though I'd heard horror stories about it. um, There wasn't that many people in Coventry doing it at the time. And how old were you when you first smoked heroin? 21. 21, so you're young. And the first time I injected heroin, I was 21 as well. So it weren't long between between going from smoking it to to injecting it. That's unusual, isn't it? Mm. Uncommon, isn't it, to be that this quite fast? Yeah. So people... Unless, unless, 
Go on, sorry, Pete. People seem to smoke it for quite a while. And they progress onto to IBUs, don't they? Yeah. To pin it. Um, but I also know people who've never really smoked it just went straight to... That's what I was just going to say. To, uh, yeah. Straight to the pin. Yeah. So it's... Uh, everyone's different, I suppose. Was it just just heroin part of life? Was there any other substances that you used? Or was it just... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was. There was a lot of... Um, like, I'd always smoke cannabis throughout all of that. I would... Um, there was tomazepam. People were, were using tomazepam a lot in them days. And uh, diconol and palfium and, you know, really strong cancer patient pills. Would you take anything? Yeah, yeah. Just to try and when escape I couldn't how stop, you feel? When I couldn't stop taking heroin, when I wanted to stop and I couldn't stop, I would just take anything, mate. Of, mm. that, of, that, of that family of drugs, like of the opiate family. Yeah, and it weren't until... Um, I went to prison, and in them days they didn't they didn't give you no substitutions for heroin withdrawal. You did your rattle, you, you, you did your cold turkey, and it was fucking horrendous. It in was, prison, yeah, it was three men in a cell, a piss pot in the corner, and you're withdrawing. Well, I was withdrawing, and it was horrendous. It was horrendous. I was about nine stone, ringing wet, and I, I got two and a half years that time. And when I came out. Like in that two and a half years, I'd my body had healed. My, my, you know, I didn't know it was an inside job, like a mental job, and, and how you felt in your heart, and you know, spiritual job. I didn't know all that. And when I came out, I was determined not to take heroin again. I didn't realise that I had to stop taking everything: alcohol, cannabis, anything mood or mind altering. Yeah, yeah. I didn't that's a right eye opener, isn't it? Yeah, I went into rehab as a, a cocaine addict. Yeah. And they explained to me that I wouldn't be able to drink. And I said to him, I said, you're not understanding what I'm saying. I'm addicted to cocaine. Mm. But I had no knowledge of what he meant at the time. You know, I have an addiction. Like, I wasn't addicted to cocaine. All abstinence is um, when people to say the word abstinence. I'd never, before recovery, I, I had no clue what the word meant. To be fully abstinent from any, anything. And just be yourself. Mm. Just be yourself with your own thoughts and feelings. I'd never done that. Yeah. I can't remember ever doing it. I always had something, whether it be cannabis, alcohol, or, or if I didn't have it, I'd be looking forward to having it. At what point, Dave, did you think, I really need to do something about this? I really need help, or else I'm going to die? Or what, was there, at what point was that? There was a, there was a, I said about 24, didn't I, when you, when you asked a similar question at the beginning of the podcast. And, there was a period where I used to be at home at my mum's because I'd, I'd ended the relationship I was in. I was at home at my mum's and um, I was so, like, I just didn't want to live and be that person. I'd gone from having a lot of respect in, in the environment I grew up in, um, being well thought of, uh, liking myself. I loved, I had a good nature. and like, Even though I was committing crime, I was always good to the people around me. And I turned into someone I didn't like. I didn't have no spirit, mm. no fighting spirit. Like, I was so weak-willed. I, I turned into someone I didn't like. And uh, I was injecting drugs. And I, I didn't ever envisage that for my life. Do you know what I mean? As I was growing up, I didn't. didn't. And um, I wanted to stop then, and I couldn't. It Did... weren't until five years later when I was in that coma. I 
I just realised. That's a good point you raised. You know when people, and I did it, when I was, I'd, I'd, I'd walk past someone in the street when I was younger and I'd see them lying there. I know the, te- the term now is gouged out. I didn't know mm. that at the time. Mm. I'd look at them and, and I'd say, what a fucking waste of time they are. Mm. You know, but then, you, then you, now I look back and I, do these people actually, they, they don't grow up wanting this to happen do they no. at some it's... point in time there was a man and woman had them as a baby yeah they, yeah. they were someone's little baby yeah. and that's someone's i remember my mum used to say that to me all the time saying you know that's someone's that's someone's baby yeah. at one point that was someone's baby yeah. me knowing i'm a i'm a dad now myself and yeah. i know what it's like to have my own little baby and and and, and the opposite of that is like that's probably someone's mum that's probably yeah, someone's yeah. dad. Most of them have probably got children. And they, they, if they had a choice, they wouldn't want to be abandoning their children. Do you know what I mean? All the time you've spent in either prisons or um, institutions and all your life, did you ever meet anyone in recovery who was in recovery themselves? Yeah. Um, I've seen it. I was in. Um... You know, did you ever hear of it? Did you ever meet anyone like who said, Dave? Yeah, I mean, so, someone tried to attract me. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. I was in Dovegate prison doing a four-year sentence, and there was a geezer doing life. Mm. He was about 10 years into his sentence. Scouse geezer. And he, I used to see him in the workshop. He had about 10, he'd, I think he got a 20 wreck. So he'd done 10, he's got about 10 left before we can go for parole. And uh, he, he, he's sitting in the corner. Like, he was the cleaner of the workshop. He used to be on the on the doing whatever I was selling Subutex at the time. I was, I was, I was getting Subutex and selling in the workshops. And, uh, and I was taking it as well. So, and he used to say to me, you know, I used to see him sitting there in the corner reading this blue book. And he just used to, he had this aura about him. He was just calm. And he, Peace. Yeah, and, I, and uh, I, I used to speak to him and, and, you know, that's how I know how long he was doing and what his crime was, double murder. Um, and then, and he used to say to me, like, well, he used to look at me and say, don't you ever want to stop? And, and by this time now, I, I used to go, I had a leg ulcer. I used to go and get my leg dressed at the healthcare quite often. Um, you know, the, I had consequences from my using. I'd already described it earlier. So I had all them injuries. And he used to say to me, don't you ever want to stop? And I used to think, stop, how can you ever stop? It'd just be substituting one for another. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and then he said, like, like this book, and he said what it was. It was the basic text. Mm. And he said, they do meetings here, you know. They do meetings. Why don't you come to a meeting? And I was never open-minded enough to go to a meeting. I thought it was up my, it might be all right for you, mate. You... Just sounds all made up, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, when people yeah. say, that, like, you know, when he's saying, do you not want to stop it all? It just sounds made up at the time, doesn't it? You're so far away from ever stopping anything. It doesn't seem possible. My thinking as well, Pete, yeah, was that um, you hadn't lived like me. Mm. You didn't come from the family I come from. You didn't use drugs to the extent that I use drugs. So how can you tell me that it'll work for me? It weren't. Do you know what I was going to suggest to you? You've met him, Big John. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant guy. If you want an interesting podcast, this geezer will blow you out of the water. But anyway, it weren't till I met Big John, I went to rehab. Yeah, I told you about this on a number of occasions. I went to rehab. Um, he's a good friend of mine now. And, and I was going there, and I still had this thing like, oh, these fucking counsellors, what are they going to be able to teach me? 
because I've been used to the people. Is this in Western you went to rehab, yeah. yeah. I've been used to people um, in the services, working in the services, and I couldn't... Still lack of trust. Yeah, still lack of trust. Couldn't identify with a lot of their lives. and So I went to I went to rehab and I had that mindset. I went to I met Big John, John Kennedy. Shout out to Big John. I love you if you're listening. Um, or if you're going to listen, you better fucking listen. <laughs> More to the point. He's going to be on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> John, I'll, I'll give you some props here, mate. I want, I want Pete knows you. He oh, always talks. Yeah. Yeah, you better be interesting, Big John. If you think I've got a story, wait till you hear it. I'll get to it. Yes, I, uh, I went there and I still had that mindset. And it weren't until I sat down with Big John and heard his story, I thought, fucking hell, I better just show up. Do you know what I mean? I just better show up. But I think I've got a story listening to his. There was so much identification in there. And the geezer now is just so full of love. He helps so many people if he can. Um, He's, he's just a good geezer, do you know what I mean? And he's someone I could identify with on so many levels. Um, and that gave me a lot of hope. Do you think from meeting him and hearing his story, you didn't feel so alone in it? It gave me, uh, yeah, I didn't feel so alone, and it gave me hope that, wow, if he can do it, yeah, yeah. if he can do it, then it can be done. I heard that at my very first meeting, my very first, ever first meeting. I heard someone say about uh, being in the care of their their child whilst under the influence, and I'm. I've, it still upsets me to talk about that, but I didn't. I thought I was a monster, and no one else did that. Yeah. But it turns out um, I'm not the only one. But I needed. I heard that at my very first meeting, and and whether it's a coincidence or not, I I, I believe I was meant to hear it on that yeah. very night. I remember the first thing I ever identified with at a meeting was a guy sat opposite me. And he said that his life had been unmanageable. He was unable to manage his life. And I thought that's the best way of describing my life. Yeah. I could yeah. never manage my life. I always felt, even in my 20s, I felt like I was in my teens and everyone else was in their 20s where they should be. I felt like I was behind. I just couldn't manage anything. It was just so chaotic. And, and, and that's a good, 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 good description, Pete, because... As I've done this podcast and spoke to you about my life, you've seen my life has been managed by others all my life, mm. up until the last five or six years. Because when I'm in prison, I'm not managing most of my life. Do you know what I mean? When I was in care, I weren't managing most of my life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They were, because they would get making sure I had food every day, with no bills, no responsibilities. Today, it's not like that. I manage my life. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and the beautiful Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Katie. <laughs> From so, when you come into oh, recovery, God, sorry. You've, you've been managing your own life, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And I've been had to learn how to do that from other other recovering addicts. Do you know what I mean? And, and how many years were you on drugs? Thirty. Thirty years. So Pete was only four when you when you got to go in. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You're 34, aren't yeah. you? <laughs> I'm 35, aren't you? Yeah. 1989. You mentioned 1989. I thought when you mentioned it earlier, um, I thought I was one. You know what I mean? You were about early 20s, or you were 20, was you? 1980. Yeah. He was doing ease around the town. Yeah. So you were in rehab in Western. Yeah. Um, you were there for 
Six four months. months. Four months. Yeah. Okay. He left. Reco- he left uh, rehab and then straight into the world of recovery. Yeah, I went to a dry house when I left rehab because I had no life skills. You know, um, and, and when I say life skills, I knew when I was in addiction or in crime, I knew who to rob, I knew where to go robbing, I knew where to not go robbing, I knew where to score, I knew where to not go to score, and that was everything that consumed my thinking in them days. Um, when I came out of rehab, had to new, I had to learn all new life skills. I'd never had a job. Do you know what I mean? I've never been a productive member of society. Mm. So uh, I was in a dry house for three and a half years. Pete came down, didn't you? Yeah, I could Pete know, came yeah. down. Pete's in a dry house. Pete met, met That's your right though, wasn't it? Yeah. It was well, it, it looked all right. I don't know what it was like to live in there. Yeah, no, it, it was good. And good people right. that ran it. Simon and Natalie. Shout out to Simon and Natalie. Um, good people. Also, shout out to Broadway Lodge, the rehab I went through. Good people that run that. Um so yeah, like, so I had to learn all new life skills and so like all the skills that you'd learned for the last however many years. Once you come into recovery, they ain't no good. Yeah, yeah, are they really? Them, yeah, like the transferable skills, some of them, but a lot of the um, a lot of the deceit we we learn how it's no good anymore. Yeah, you have to unlearn it, sort of thing. Yeah, that's it. You have to unlearn it. Yeah. And you particularly have to go against the grain of what you believed in. Yeah, it's no. to show that faith and to be honest and be trusting and trusting. But now I trust not myself. anti-authority. Yeah, not anti-authority. <laughs> now I trust myself. Like I trust myself to make healthy decisions. Do you know what I mean? For the first time in my life, really, that ain't gonna hurt me. That ain't gonna hurt you. I still say things I wish I'd never said sometimes. And but actual physical harms and intention. I don't ever have intentions to hurt anyone now. In any capacity, not you know, like physically or or not just physically, but emotionally, I, you know. I what, don't... what do you do today if you do hurt someone without intending to do? I'll, go, I'll make amends at the earliest opportunity. Yeah, like I, I, I apologize and and own my part in stuff. Is that something you did in the thirty years previous? No. <laughs> no. You say your decision making is a lot better. Yeah, a lot more healthy. That's one of the main things I've. Um... I don't know, I really appreciate it, really. My decision-making was so poor all through my my using. Mm. And even in my early recovery, sometimes my decision-making was poor. It led me back to using sometimes. Now I appreciate um, that I can make pretty good decisions. Don't really affect, I uh, don't have a massive negative effect on my life. I make stupid decisions daily. Yeah, yours are poor. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not life-threatening. No. You know, like, um, I, I, I've got to say this, yeah, because um, it, I, I feel quite proud about it as well. I, I, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to acknowledge that I've got a lot of good qualities about me because um, I never had no self-worth before when I was in addiction and when I came out of addiction, I didn't know about self-worth. So I had to learn all of that and it was other men that taught me how to do that, you know what I mean? And um, today... The amount of people that knew me in my old lifestyle, knew me in my addiction, knew me before my addiction got really bad um, and had respect for me for different reasons. They've got, I've got more respect now, a healthy respect from people that know me and knew me before. I've got more healthy respect now than I've ever had in my life and I'm proud of that. For someone out there who is in a dark place, 
who is in the grips of addiction, who is where you once were, what would be the one bit of advice you'd like to give that person? You're not alone. You're not alone. Um, no matter how much you feel like you are alone, you're not alone. Learn to trust and, and to talk. There are people that care. Coming out of 30 years of active addiction into the world of recovery, how is your life right here today? What's, been, what's going on? So I gave you um, a lot of information about how life used to be for me. At the end of my using, I was in the Salvation Army. Um, I had no more bottle or yeah, call it bottle to go committing crime. I was physically really unwell because of the consequences of my drug use. Uh, today, I am healthy. I'm happy most days. I've worked a couple of times. I've, I've worked in the field of um, addiction. I've worked as a recovery support worker. I've worked as a mental health support worker. I've worked, I had my own online business, health and well-being products. Um, I uh, currently work with a friend, waste management license. Um, I've got a beautiful girlfriend. That's what life looks like for me today. Yeah, it doesn't sound that bad, does it? No, Things have definitely improved, don't I'm hoping one day when, when, uh, when I take it down there, I'll get spotted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you ever think back in the day you'd be doing sat on, doing a podcast with the next copper? No, no. I'd have to get that one in. No, Kieran, I was going to mention it. Like, I was going to mention it. Like, uh, you know, this is this is it. Like, uh, I'll tell you what I did the other day. Fucking hell. Language. I got called out to do a quote for someone. I got a message on Messenger. Oh, um, got your number off. I got your details off Ronnie. Someone we know. Um, uh, could you uh, give us a quote for these? And they sent some photos over of stuff they wanted removing, yeah, and, and taken to the tip. So I said I'd have to come out and have a look because we, you know, we need to know what the weight of these things are going to be. So I went out, give her. I said, all right, yeah, they were kind to take it. Said all right, so so I went there the next day, took it, put it on the bag, tipped it. Went, I said, We've done that job. She says, Oh, I'm at work at the moment. Do it, I could meet you later, or let me see if I can get out of work. I said, Well, where do you work? We can drive past. She said, I work at the police station. I thought, Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I went, What? She says, we work, I work at the police station. I said, what you do? You're on the desk. How did she going to say she's a receptionist? Yeah? And, uh, and, I, and she says, uh, she laughed and she said, uh, nah, nah. I said, well, I'll tell you what, come out. Can you bring the money out if we drive past? She said, yeah, yeah. I said, all right, I'll send my, my partner out so I can get a Facebook of him receiving money from you. So I can put it on Facebook and call him a grass. <laughs> she's CID. But you know, like, and she said, when she handed me the money, I went, what, did you see ID? Because she was playing close and she went, I am, yeah. And I went, fucking hell, I said, life's changed. And she went, yeah, I've heard, I've heard your life's changed. Do you know what I mean? Um, listen, when I was using drugs, Kieran, to answer your question, I used to look at Joe Bloggs in the street, walking past with his missus, and just long for a day where I could just do that. And today, you've got that. Yeah, yeah. And it's there for anyone. 
you know, you know yourself, Pete. It you is, yeah. Key. It's there for anyone. The support is there if you're open-minded, you're willing, and you're honest. It's there for all of us. Well, then I'm going to take in consideration our next guest. Yeah. Okay. You don't know who it is? Okay. <laughs> right, so we want you to ask a question, which then we will then ask the next guest at the start of the next podcast. So, Dave, over to you. Any question you want, within reason. Okay, so knowing how much courage it t- took for me to speak about the subject I am quite open and, and willing to talk about now, I would like to ask your next guest, where does he find his courage? How does he find his courage? Dave, I want to personally thank you um, for firstly agreeing to come on. Secondly, for talking so openly and honestly about some very traumatic events that have gone in your life. Mm -hmm. And also by getting clean, staying clean and helping those who follow afterwards. You know, I think that's a really amazing thing that we do, isn't it? And thank you for um, inviting me. No problem. Pete, anything you'd like to say? No, it's been, it's been good to see you again. Yeah, thanks. Been, it's been, I've heard some stuff today that um, some of it I know, some of it I, I never know. Yeah. It's been really interesting. It's nice to have an insight on uh, your life. And I follow what you do now. I always see you. I'm rooting for you, man. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate it.